we find David in 1 Samuel chapter 24 on the brink of perhaps one of the most important moments of his life. He's been on the run from Saul. If you're here with us last week, we looked at the difference between good jealousy and bad jealousy, being jealous of someone and being jealous for someone's happiness, the good side of jealousy. And in the intervening chapters from last week to this week, Saul has tried to pin David to the wall with his spear to take his life a number of times, and David is now on the run, and he's fled to the wilderness of En Gedi. Got a picture to show you here. Take a look. Uh, this is the Dead Sea. It's about 50 miles southeast of Jerusalem, and this is looking to the west toward Jerusalem, kind of you can see at the bottom of the cliffs there in Gedi, there's an oasis that's still there to this day. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, remember those, you, his, you know, copies of the Old Testament scriptures that were preserved in caves like this one. Uh, the, uh, the place where those scrolls were found is a little bit farther north of where En Gedi is today, and perhaps David was in a cave like this one at En Gedi. Saul's received an intelligence report that David is in this region. He sets off with thousands of his troops to capture David. David is really just a couple of hundred soldiers of his own. He moves his men into the caves, and Saul goes into one to answer the call of nature. This is just one of many examples that the scriptures are not written like legend or myth. This is historical fact, written from people who were eyewitnesses who were there. I can just imagine that Saul has to let his eyes adjust to the darkness. He goes into the cave. He can't really see what's inside. He can't spot David and his men who are farther back. He takes off his outer robe. He sets it down, and David's men see this is an opportunity for David to strike back at Saul. He's faced with a choice, perhaps one of the most important decisions of his life, either to let Saul go live to fight another day, maintain his honor, or to take Saul's life, to get back at him, and to seek his own revenge. I want you to think of a person you know who's wronged you. Who's hurt you, whether intentionally or not. You know, things that are easy to let go of you know, don't hurt us too much, but something that you're still to some degree holding on to. Because we're faced with a decision in a way similar to David's, perhaps different set of circumstances, but, but, but what's our choice? To let it go? or to, to get back at them, either to them or behind their back by talking about them to another person about what they've done. We're faced with decisions like this, with the things that happen to us all the time. Let's not make this just sort of a philosophical, theological exercise for the next few minutes of our time together. Let's make this personal. For the next few minutes, I'd like you to keep in mind of somebody who's wounded you, who's hurt you. Here's what we'll do over the next few minutes to talk about forgiveness as our duty, number one. 
than to talk about it as our delight. And then to talk about forgiveness, to see what it looks like on display in our lives today, to go from have to, a duty, to want to, our delight, and then how we can be the kind of people who, when faced with a decision to forgive and forget, or perhaps to forgive and to hold on, what that looks like practically in our life today. Let's start with the first one, forgiveness as our duty. And it is our duty because Jesus says so. So in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says uh, this in the first one, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also which isn't about being passive or laying down or being a doormat. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus, Jesus gives us a healthy way to, to talk about conflict. He says, go to your brother alone. Start with him. Don't just lay down. Don't just forget about it. Do something about it. There's a, a healthy way to deal with it. Uh, uh, Peter, in Matthew 18, comes to Jesus and says, how do I know when I've done my duty? How do I know when I'm done forgiving somebody who's wronged me? Seven times, right? number of completion of perfection in Jewish culture and Jesus says Peter when it's seven you're just getting started I tell you not seven times but 70 times seven that it's possible to forgive the same person for the single offense for the same offense a number of times on the inside in your own heart after this Jesus goes on to tell a parable about a couple of servants and one who was merciful and one who was unmerciful and it says you have an obligation you have a duty to be forgiving because you have been forgiven it's your duty for Jesus sake because he says so but is it possible also to be forgiving for your sake because you may say it's hard to turn the other cheek and to absorb the pain when someone wrongs you it's not hard it's not easy, it's really hard. Let me ask you, do you think it was easy for David? Because he could have killed Saul and claimed self-defense. Remember that Saul had tried to take his life multiple times. You could argue that Saul didn't deserve to be spared, that what he deserved was actual justice, and after all, that's what the soldiers say. But notice this, that if David takes Saul's life, that in some way, he becomes a little more like Saul. That he's not any better off than if he would have turned the other cheek. That if he seeks revenge, if he gets back at Saul in anger, that the self-righteousness becomes a part of him. Uh, in verse 13, David's quoting a proverb that his soldiers would have known, and he says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. And to the degree that you and I withhold forgiveness, it changes us too. That when you complain to someone about someone else and what they've done, that under the surface, 
when you put yourself on a pedestal as if to say, well, I would never do that, but can you believe what they did, the self-righteousness, the anger, the way you elevate yourself at the end of the day, you can't forgive someone that you feel superior to. I had a friend in college, and after college, I started dating a friend of that friend. It didn't last very long in that relationship. When it ended, I was talking to my mutual friend about the person that I was dating. She had kind of ended it, and in a way, I had, I mean, well, kind of ended it. Yeah, there's not really an equivocation there. She did. <laughs> and for good reasons. And I was talking to my friend, her name was Elena, about the other friend. And I said, you know, trying to pull together some shreds of my own dig dignity about reasons why I wanted it to end too, that I was trying to kind of make up. Uh, I said to, to my friend Elena, well, you know, when she would write me emails, there were always a lot of typos and grammatical errors and, you know, I don't, I don't know, I can't be with somebody like that. And my friend Elena turned to me in a very kind and slightly sarcastic way, said, you know, Nate, in my emails, I never make any mistakes or grammatical errors. As if to say to me, Nate, you probably do the same thing all the time and don't even realize it. I would argue that it's good to forgive. Because if we're honest with ourselves, whether we've done those things or not, we're capable of the same things ourselves. And then when we judge other people, at the end of the day, we have no idea what their true motives really were. At the end of the day, we have no right to sit in a seat of judgment over them, that there's one person who does, and that person is not us. And if you don't, not only does it change you, but there are consequences for that. That at the end of the parable of the unmerciful servant, that happens right after Jesus and Peter have this conversation about how many times we should forgive other people, at the end of that parable, for the, the servant who was not merciful, though he had been shown mercy by his master, Jesus lands the plane and he says, uh, after, the, after the unmerciful servant has been thrown in jail, he says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So what about your heart? I mean, how... Do you forgive someone not just for Jesus' sake because he says so? And that matters. In fact, it should get the, the most important vote, his vote. And how do you forgive not just for Jesus' sake out of duty, but for your sake as well? How does it move from have to to want to, from duty to delight? That brings us to our second point. In 2006, in an Amish town in Pennsylvania, a gunman broke into a one-room schoolhouse and before he took his own life, most of the students in that classroom and the teachers were able to escape, but he wounded five girls and took the life of five more. 
Maybe you remember this story, not only because of the horror and the tragedy and the evil that took place on that day, but within hours, the Amish community surrounded the family of the gunman. His parents that lived in the community nearby were known to everyone in the Amish community, and, and his wife and his three surviving children. The days later, at the funeral, the community showed up in force. They were half of the people at the funeral for this gunman. A spokesman for their community said that all the family, family members who lost children forgave the shooter and his family. How do you do that? And how do you do that and mean that? Not just because you have to, but because you want to. Was it simply a cultural norm that they had been socially conditioned or spiritually conditioned out of duty to forgive because they had to? Maybe. Uh, there's a sociologist by the name of Stephen Nolt who was speaking at Goshen College up the road from where that took place in Pennsylvania a year later. And it, in an address, he said this, that in the future, such a response will be more and more difficult in a culture of radical self-assertion. More and more difficult in the future, I mean, here we are 18 years later, more and more difficult in the future in a culture of 16. Uh, cultural self-assertion. Every person in Western culture today is told to be yourself, not to let anyone tell you who you are or what you should do or how you should live. Radical self-assertion. You know what forgiveness is? It's the opposite. It's radical self-renunciation. You know what apology is for that matter? It's the opposite. It's radical self-renunciation. You know what slowing down to listen and to serve and to love someone who God has put in your life in every calling that you have? It's radical self-renunciation. Forgiveness is saying, you've hurt me. but I don't have the right to hurt you back. I'm giving that up. It's saying, I know the way that you've wounded me, but I don't know your motives, but there is one, only there's only one person who knows them in full. It's saying, I know that you've hurt me and you've wounded me, and I want you to know the way that you've hurt me and wounded me, the way that I feel because of the choices that you've made and the way they've affected me, but I don't have the ability and I don't have the wisdom to know what you fully deserve. It's radical self-renunciation. And that's hard to do in a culture of radical self-assertion. That's hard to do when your heart is telling you to get back or to stuff it on the inside in fear. Where do you get the power to renounce yourself? The only way is to see the one who renounced himself for you. The one who forgave you when he didn't have to. The Lord's anointed who was superior in every way and became inferior for you. Remember the words of Paul? 
He made himself nothing. He's the only one who has the right to give you everything that you deserve, the only one who has, who has full knowledge of all of your selfish intentions and motives and forgives you anyway. He's the only one who turned the other cheek when the soldiers mistreated him. He didn't lift his finger, but instead he said, Father, forgive them. And he knew full well what they were doing. He's the one who forgives you. The one who forgives you not just one time, but 70 times. Not just 70 times, but 70 times seven. The one who says, my mercies for you are new every morning. And when you see him renouncing himself just so that he could have you, when you see that you are forgiven, it gives you the power to be forgiving. Even when you've been wounded, And even when they do it again. Which brings us to our last question. What does this look like in real life today? I mean practically, how can we be the kind of people who have been forgiven by Jesus, who are delighted that he delights in us and doesn't hold our sins against us? How can we be the kind of people who don't hold it against the people who have wronged us, but but out of out of goodwill and kindness, continue to be forgiven and forgiving on display today, one, two, and three, in closing, kind of practically. You remember the person who you were thinking of a few moments ago? Number one, forgiveness isn't the end, it's the beginning. That if you wait until you feel like you're ready to forgive, you may never get around to forgiving. That it begins the journey for us. It's not just at the completion or the end of the journey. Again, as I said a few moments ago, you may need to forgive someone for the same sin a number of times on the inside in your heart. For that matter, you may need to say, I'm sorry, to apologize for the same sin a number of times to someone who's in the process of still forgiving you. It's not the end of the journey, it's the beginning. And when you start forgiving earlier, oh wait, I'm on my second point. Let's go to the next one, Cindy. I jumped ahead. It's not the end, it's the beginning. And if you forgive before you think you're ready, you may find that you heal faster than you expected. It's number one. Let's go to what is now number two. It's not ignoring what happened. It has boundaries. It's not pretending. Like it doesn't matter. Again, remember Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a pattern for how we deal with anger. If you fast forward uh, into the story of David and Saul, this happens again for David and Saul. David's got the opportunity to take Saul's life again. And he knows that after Saul has now been pursuing him, uh, after he had forgiven him the first time, after the second time now, when they have this encounter, that David doesn't trust Saul the way that he did before. Uh, After they are reconciling for the second time, Saul says, hey, David, why don't you come down here? Because he's kind of a on a hill above him, and David says, I don't think I'm going to come down there again. I don't think I'm going to give myself the chance to, to be in harm's way and to, and to have you try to take my life again. Instead of me going down to you, why don't you send your messenger to me? He doesn't trust Saul in the same way that he did before, though he has already forgiven Saul. It's not ignoring what happened. It is boundaries. It's not the end. It's the beginning. And one more it's not just your forgiveness, it's God's. 
That's what Jesus says. It's not just a horizontal thing, it's a vertical thing, that when you forgive someone, you're giving them God's forgiveness. Jesus says, Matthew 18, it says, whatever you loose on earth, he's talking about forgiveness, whatever you give on earth will be given from heaven. Remember what happens to Saul when David forgives him? When he spares his life in 1 Samuel chapter 24, he's cut to the heart and he breaks down in tears and he weeps. He's changed. And it'll change you too. When you see the one who from the cross thought of you. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for your sake. Amen.